So we're on to episode five here, the ethics of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance or DeFi. I thought it might be interesting for us to look at this through the guise of different schools of ethical thought and, you know, sort of go over some of the key concerns that have come up that that people keep putting out there about cryptocurrency and DeFi and, and look at them through these different prisms. I think that that sounds like a really fascinating idea. Before we get on to that, what's the school of ethical thought that you most align with in your own life? This is a difficult question to answer because philosophers that study ethics, it's such a minefield of absolute nonsense, really. Like the the things that they get hung up on, like definitions are just such a, a core part of it that, I mean, we're, we're going to talk more later about environmental ethics and the various extensions of that. And it hasn't progressed very far just because people get stuck in the basic concepts of, you know, of what they're actually arguing for rather than saying, you know, well, environmental ethics at the basic level is let's do good things for the planet and that'll probably, you know, benefit us as well. They don't want to talk about that sort of stuff. They want to, you know, get down to the nitty gritty. So it's just this, it's this minefield of incorrect terms and like people just at each other's throats over nonsense. So, well, I, I don't feel comfortable answering that question because... I pick and choose bits and pieces of all the different schools of thoughts that suit my purposes at the time. Sounds like you're a relativist. Moral relativism is one of the the schools of thought we'll go into. I think we should start with absolutism because I think that... Absolutely. Good one. I think moral absolutism is a good starting point. It's, It's a good way to get people that are uninitiated into philosophy whatsoever into the conversation. Because, you know, as you've just pointed out in your, in your own smug way, moral absolutism is pretty straightforward to understand. And all these things, we're not going to go into much detail. It's going to be a very superficial level. And then we can sort of use them. Like, we're not going to do what I've just claimed a lot of philosophers do and get down into the nitty gritty. We're going to look at, look at these concepts in a very superficial light. And then we're going to sort of apply them to DeFi and cryptocurrency. All right. Let's get superficial. Why don't you treat me like I know nothing about these schools? Okay. And tell me what absolutism is about. All right. So we're going to go through four. Moral absolutism is the first one. And excuse us, but we have someone playing the tuba next door who we share. <laughs> who we share a wall with. Our, our neighbors have a nine or ten year old girl who I... Yeah, she's... i hope that's coming through i hope you're hearing this moral absolutism so there are absolute truths okay absolute universal the obvious one that comes up killing is bad killing is bad slavery is bad these sort of things so all actions are intrinsically right or they're intrinsically wrong okay the the way we're discussing ethics here relates to your actions so how your actions it's <laughs> a good one so so how you act and the ethical basis for doing so this sort of stuff so moral abs- moral absolutism pretty basic you know is is an action defined as being either totally good or totally bad dependent on the the outcome of that action or is it the process that the the action in like involves so this is where absolutism fractures up into different different schools of thought 
So you've got deontology, for instance, the morality of the action is based on whether it's right under a series of rules, not based on the consequences. Mm -hmm. So if I killed someone, but it was sort of accidental and I was trying to do something that was good, that might be permissible. Yeah. As opposed to outcome based where a person died. So it doesn't really matter what the process was. That was a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, and see, this is this is what turns a lot of people off philosophy. The the arguments, the conflicts within a broad school of thought. Mm. So, moral absolutism deals in the absolutes. Then you go into moral relativism. Everything is relative. Context matters. And the context we're, we're speaking about here is generally culture and histo- history. So, the circumstances change at times. I mentioned slavery being abs- an absolute bad uh, when we're talking absolutism, if we're talking about moral relativism, slavery was good at certain times. And, you know, slavery is an extreme example. There are other ones that are probably, you know, going to be more sympathetic. But let's let's talk about extremes here. Slavery at one point was not necessarily bad. It was permissible. So that moral, with moral relativism... As That's, in the people who were enacting slavery were doing so. They were doing so within the context of the society that they lived in, in which case, you know, it's okay, it's permissible, it's fine to have slaves because that was the the overarching values of the society that they lived in allowed it. Right. 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 So you're uncomfortable with that? Yeah. Deeply. Yeah, it's it's an uncomfortable thought, but you put yourself, you know, like, I mean, we, we talk about Nazis a lot, or well, not you and I, but <laughs> like how, you know, the SS acted, it was all, you know, under orders. And at the time for them, it wasn't necessarily, they weren't, they didn't consider themselves evil people. I reckon very few people do consider themselves to be evil people. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Dubious, it sounds like for you. Yeah. So there are different, there are again, different branches of moral relativism. Um, You've got descriptive moral relativists. That's sort of the level that we're going to stay at, which is basically just describing the, the definition, I guess that's, that's defining in circles there. Uh, Then you've got meta-ethical and normative. And the meta-ethical and normative basically, to varying degrees, say, oh, it's it's allowable because it's fine within within that context. Mm-hmm. Descriptive just says, well, that is the context within it which within it which it, within which it occurred. The others say it's permissible because it was within those contexts. Right. So going back to slavery, a descriptive moral relativist would say context matters but they wouldn't necessarily say slavery was was okay it was kosher whereas someone who's a normative moral relativist would say yeah that's fine they were acting within the confines of their their social structure at the time so that's a-okay maybe one that's um i i can't really bend my head around making slavery morally acceptable 
especially because there so are, there were so many. There's people. a distinction between acceptable and permissible. Per- permissible within within the the confines of the time that they existed in, because there were we have so many writings from you know if we're talking about the the uh, Atlantic slave trade and, and slaves in the USA or slaves back in. Um, uh, Roman times, we have so many writers who who say this is this is not okay. What I, I think that I could get my head around it in the context of say the the Mongol invasions of Europe. You know, if you were just an everyday Mongol soldier, mm-hmm. you are doing some pretty horrific things on a day to day basis during your invasions. Yeah, but but the context in which you exist is that is your culture. Your king is telling you khan is telling you what you need to do everyone in your society is geared around doing you know some pretty evil things but i really wouldn't judge any of those soldiers looking back hold on see now i i dispute that because you know they famously killed one in every 10 males of the of you know their conquered enemies hmm why is that more permissible than holding a slave? This is we're talking about actions of killing people here. Mm. There, I, I think that there's a difference where there is clearly an argument being made, and that argument is visible to people that an action is wrong. Um, and if that argument is just not taken into consideration, then it's it becomes a more evil act than if there is no dissenting voice than if you're... And I, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not a um, an archaeologist or an anthropologist dealing with Mongol culture, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine there were too many writings on the, you know, the ethics of various invasions or, uh, or battle plans or, you know, killing of just random civilians. I don't think there were too many dissenting voices... And as such, it seems more more acceptable or more able to be accepted looking back on it and saying those soldiers probably weren't evil people if you'd taken them out of that that um, culture and put them somewhere else. They probably wouldn't have done those things. You could say that about slave owners, though. I guess it's all relative. I think, I think what, like, you know, using the, the example of Roman you know, patricians that did have the slaves. We have more texts from from the era than we do of, you know, Mongols who, you know, were nomadic to a massive extent. So maybe that's informing your sympathi- sympathising with the, the average Mongol soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly, certainly would be. I am envisaging them as a very homogenous society with homogenous views and probably wasn't the case let's move on to the last two schools of thought that i want to i want to get through and then we can we can tackle DeFi and crypto because well that's why we're here after all so the next one so we've done moral absolutism moral relativism they're kind of linked in a way the next one i want to go through is utilitarianism mm-hmm. um that's the greater good do do for the greater good like your actions should always be for the greater good maximize happiness and well-being uh 
the units of measurement is what's extremely contested in utilitarian schools of thought. So you want, but ultimately you want to maximize happiness or minimize pain, suffering, evil, that sort of stuff. So the highest measure of utility suggests the action that you should take in utilitarianism. So ultimately, and another, another reason this one is contested is whose utility? Your utility, you know, again, we'll use the slave example because we've been, you know, bashing that one at this point. Your utility in, you know, not having to do dishes because you have a slave is lesser than the utility of a slave being freed. So utilitarianism would say slavery is bad. It's not, it's not a moral absolute. It's a, it's a utilitarian concept, I guess. Do you want to discuss that quickly or are you happy to branch onto the next one? That seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, I think utilitarianism is another. Like absolutism is a pretty, pretty basic concept to get your head around. So then we've got environmental ethics, which I wanted to bring up because one of the concepts we've spoken about before is the amount of energy use that Bitcoin has, you know, variously it's been described as having the amount of energy use of Switzerland or Portugal or mm. any other nation. Any other nation of that size. Yes. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> so I thought it would be necessary for us to, to include environmental ethics. Maybe I've failed a little bit in, in my research, or maybe it's just that environmental ethics is a hotbed of dissent at the moment, but I'll run you through three different schools of thought Mm -hmm. within environmental ethics, and we can choose between us what is most applicable for us. Okay. So you start with the libertarian extension of environmental ethics. This school basically commits to extending equal rights to all members of a community. So we currently consider in ethics humans largely, Environmental ethics with a libertarian extension wants to extend that to sentient beings for like initially, and then I guess progressively, and again, there's dissenting views on this to non-sentient beings um, and potentially to plant life as well. What are, just so I'm clear, what are non-sentient beings if not plants? Bugs. Oh, okay. So uh, bugs and basic animals that don't have sentience. Uh, so then you've got the ecologic extension. This one emphasizes the value of the biosphere of the planet, uh, more so than just the rights of individual organisms. So it's about the collective, mother nature, yada, yada. Um, some, some good, you know, hippie stuff. It's cool. And then we've finally got one, which, well, I would say is probably most relevant to us today. We can dispute that if you disagree with me. So the conservation ethic values the environment for the value or the use or the potential use that it could give to humanity uh, by way of natural resources or, you know, tourism, trade, whatever else. Uh, And that's all with a view of improving or at the minimum retaining our standard of living. That does seem like the easiest sell to the world in terms of an ethical viewpoint by which decisions can be can be made. Yeah. 
it's got more basis in economics and is easier to sell to people that don't have much empathy. But I, I do feel like the community that is affected by the environment, libertarian environmentalism, mm-hmm. that strikes me as <clears throat> that strikes me as the most on the face of it morally defensible position these are the people who live in the area they need to care for the area to be to be fine Mm. but it it does without having without knowing more about it it does seem like there's a an obvious trap to that which is that everything is connected if the amazon is burning because bolsonaro is allowing farmers to go in there and destroy it does the world get a say in that? You know, the local, mm. the, the country in question is deciding it's... Um, and that's why the ecologic extension, I think, came up pretty quickly behind the libertarian one. Mm. People are cognizant of that. Yeah. So looking at the, the world from, you know, uh, an eco- ecological perspective, that... that I think runs into so many uh, political disagreements yeah. where you've got people saying, well, we don't want Brussels or the UN or whoever the the boogeyman of the time is mm. deciding things for us. We don't want them making... They're going to take our freedoms from us. Yeah, it would be just a hard sell to have decisions made anywhere that you didn't have sovereignty over, that yeah. you weren't voting for these systems I wouldn't support a system that decisions were made that I couldn't couldn't vote on um, on the face of it that would just be my my starting point it doesn't pass the sniff test no mm. I mean I, I I could I probably wouldn't wouldn't have ruled, voted for brexit so you know I'm immediately disqualifying what I just said but as a general rule I wouldn't want to give up power yeah and yeah it would it's something that would give you deep cause for concern yeah so i I think that you're right in terms of um in terms of the ecological ethical viewpoint that that you think we should should go with okay well that's good because let's move into it now i think we should probably start with the energy use of Bitcoin, just because we, we've mentioned it already, yeah, and it's an area that we that we both agree, yeah, is it's probably the single largest threat to to Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin can be shut down by any government. I don't think it could be shut down by any individual. Yeah, I think that the, but I I do think that it's going to have an increasingly hard time being justified as the energy use increases Mm -hmm. and its energy use is going to increase over time that that is clear yeah and it's going to increase rapidly in a world where there are proof of work and proof of stake networks it seems very hard to justify proof of work i think you should give a quick definition of each sure just now proof of work currencies like bitcoin and ethereum currently they maintain their their integrity by a whole network of computers having the blockchain on them having the the complete record 
of that blockchain and they solve problems. They use computing power, they use electricity to solve problems and they're all fed into and distributed out to the one network. Keeping the network secure is a function of how many computers there, there are connected, how much hash power there is, how much electricity is, is going into the network. And the thing that keeps it safe is that if you wanted to change any of the transactions, if you wanted to change how much Bitcoin you had and, and steal Bitcoin, you would need to be putting in more than 51% of the computing power of the, of the electricity. And that is just, it's an insurmountable task. So this, this energy usage is keeping Bitcoin safe. Mm. That's, that's what secures it. The very fact that is causing environmental concerns or will cause environmental concerns is what makes it safe. That's right. And there's a few things that there's a few things that people say to defend this. The first and most obnoxious is, well, that's what keeps it safe. And I think that that's a bit obnoxious because it's not necessarily what has to keep it safe. Mm. There are other ways of doing this. And it's just not a very good rhetorical argument. You know, this is the way things are. Therefore, it should be the way things are. Yeah. It's sort of appealing to the status quo. The other argument, which is which is better and which does have some merit, although I do think it's... I think it's, it's left wanting, is that most of the... most of the energy that goes into keeping Bitcoin secure is clean energy. It's hydroelectric energy in China. It's solar energy in the United States and, um, uh, and Europe. It's energy which has no better use than to be put into the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin network, it, it has a zero economic profit to be a miner. Now, that, that's different from saying zero profit in, in, you know, what you would think of when you think of is the corner shop making profit. Yeah, mm. it probably is. But in a perfect market, it's making zero economic profit. Does that, does that make sense or should I explain that? Could you explain it? Yeah, sure. So profit is is straightforward and, and you would understand, everyone would understand it. Mm-hmm. If you're running a corner shop and you've got costs of $50,000 a year and your revenue is $100,000 a year, then you've got profit of 50000 Revenue minus costs. That's right. Economic. Economic profit relates to whether it would be profitable for a competitor to come in and set up the same shop or sell the same good Mm -hmm. it would reduce your profits but are they going to be making enough profit to actually make it worthwhile yeah and if they're not then the system has zero economic profit it's just not worthwhile bringing in a new competitor right that makes sense yeah so the the electricity that's used to to put into Bitcoin has zero economic profit. There's nothing, there is nothing else that it could be used for that would generate more profit. Because if there were, that's what it would be doing. That's where it would be flowing to. That's, I mean, that's purely an argument on profit. Yeah, it is. And it's it's not, 
like the, the zero economic profit. If that was the case, we should just not be generating that electricity. We should just not be mm. uh, creating those greenhouse gases. Yeah. And the, the argument that it's a, a green way of doing this, that it's coming out of hydroelectric energy in China, where else could that hydroelectric energy be going to? Could that be going to the major cities in central China? They have a huge amount of coal-fired and mm. coal-fired so uh, does, does it make it a, is it a mitigating circumstance or is it not no i i do not see it as being I'd, I'd be talking in absolutes there yeah it is a mitigating source the cleaner the energy can be the better the that that just that is that rings true but, but yes sorry but is the energy required in the first place? You know, when you get to that question and you realize, well, we're going to step into some really complex territory here because if it was easy to switch over, then it might already have been done. Mm -hmm. But the Bitcoin community is hugely, hugely resistant to change. Uh, They seem to have ossified into into just a, sort of a religion. They have a mythical figure, Satoshi Nakamoto, mm-hmm. who was the founder, who is cult leader. no longer around. Mm-hmm. He left them writings in the form of uh, forum posts and emails and, and lists that, yep. that he sent. They have had prophets who have come and brought the masses to this religion. Roger Ver. Uh, Bitcoin Jesus um, disciple and they have had breakaway factions you can think of Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision Bitcoin Gold Litecoin is a fork of Bitcoin yeah so and and there are so many people who would need to agree to any given change that it's just unlikely to happen. I mean, Bitcoin Cash, for example, it really, it's a fork of Bitcoin. And its major point was that it wanted transactions to be to be cheaper. Mm. And transactions are limited because there are only so many that can fit into each block. And each block takes about 10 minutes to mint. So you've got, you know... That's your limit on on transactions. The more transactions that you try to fit into each block, the more the price is going to go up. It's pure supply and demand. Bitcoin Cash, Roger Ver, he he said, why don't we just change the the size of the each block? Why don't we just increase it? We can fit more transactions in. We can lower the cost. Transactions can occur more quickly because even though each block uh, goes through every 10 minutes, unless you're in the next block, you're waiting for, you know, an hour, two hours, seven hours, depending on how much you want to pay in transaction fees. It seems pretty straightforward, but the argument that came out against it was in two parts. Firstly, this was not the product that Satoshi had come up with, so we're not changing it. Mm. We're, We're not you want to create a new new blockchain? You go out and create a new one. We're not changing Bitcoin. And the second was that if you increase the block size, 
then you increase the size of uh, the download that's required to to run a node. The if if you download uh, Bitcoin and run run a full node, it it's in the gigabytes. But with bigger block sizes and more transactions in them, then it's naturally going to be bigger. And the ri- there's a risk that if you make it too hard for everyday people to run nodes, then it's going to get centralized and that's going to make the system more brittle because there are just going to be fewer nodes. Do you think in this case, being decentralized, having no hierarchy is actually preventing Bitcoin from becoming more, you know, ecological? Yeah, ecological. Yeah, I... I do, I do, and I don't, I don't see it going away. I don't see this problem going away. I think it's just going to get bigger. Yeah. It seems like the sort of thing that it's going to be difficult to, to change, but the sooner the better Mm. for everyone and the sooner the easier. Yeah. And this is, this is part of the reason that I personally don't hold Bitcoin, Mm. um, because you don't have to you don't have to be damaging the environment and have cryptocurrency and you don't have to hold bitcoin to get the kind of returns that you want from cryptocurrency there are cryptos that provide on average better returns that in my opinion have better prospects for returns in the future mm. what bitcoin does do very well for a portfolio is and I don't want to get too technical here, but for those of you who do understand this, it um, it increases your sharp ratio, and it puts you uh, it puts you in a better position on your efficient frontier, um, it, or at least it's easier to to get yourself in on a good position in, in your efficient frontier. I mean, anything can can be on that, but Bitcoin just makes it makes it easier. For those of you who have no idea what what I'm talking about, it reduces how much your portfolio loses in value when it when the crypto markets go down, and it just it reduces volatility overall. Is that just because it's considered compared to other cryptos more stable? Well, it's for a lot of reasons. Yeah, that's partly it. Um, it's also the most paired. So every every other cryptocurrency is going to have a Bitcoin pair that mm-hmm. it trades with. While that is not true of every other crypto with every other crypto. So there's always going to be a, you know, uh, Dogecoin to Bitcoin trading pair. But there might not be a Dogecoin to Ethereum yeah. trading pair. I there obviously will be for Dogecoin and Ethereum, but I've just picked. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, let's let's discuss this particular ethical issue through those different ethical concepts we've come up with. Sure, I'm going to start with the bold assertion mm-hmm. that apart from the ecological damage that's being caused by Bitcoin and other proof of work cryptocurrencies that i don't have any ethical issue with cryptocurrency all right well thanks for listening in guys
I do, and that's why we're doing this episode. Sick. But we're, I mean, we're still going through energy use here. So the energy use of Bitcoin in particular. So let's look at that through moral absolutism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that, I mean, the science is in now. Like this, this isn't a, con- a contested space anymore. Humans are having a damaging impact on the environment. Full stop. That's no longer in dispute, right? No. As a result of that, surely it follows that there is an absolute truth that we should be preventing, we should be minimizing that damage that we're doing. Do you think that's a fair assumption? Because philosophy is all about making assumptions. And if, you, if someone believes your assumption, then you progress down the line. All right, well, should we be limiting our energy use from the ground up or from nation states down? As in, should we be limiting how much energy nation states individually use and does Bitcoin just have to fit in with that? Or do we look at it from the ground up and say, well, Bitcoin is using a lot of energy and it's just producing code, so... Well, I mean, as it stands currently, nations seem to be not the ones taking the lead. Companies seem to be more attuned to the, you know, what the common person thinks. And overwhelmingly, the common person thinks, yeah, we, we should stop fucking with the environment. And so they're putting things in place. Nations, well, I mean, we're living in Australia where they're very reticent to, to do anything to improve their their environmental game. It's just a piece of coal. You don't have to be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of this lump of coal. <laughs> So, ground up or f- top down? I mean, I, either way, I, either way, Bitcoin is using too much energy. Yeah. But I, I don't understand how you could look at one factor, like an, an output of a thing, and go, yep, it's a bad thing. You No, this is just, these are all just parts of an argument here. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's bad. Look, the energy use of Bitcoin, it it doesn't need to happen. It's a ridiculous amount of energy. It's a bad thing. Yeah. Look, I mean, I want to sort of gloss through absolutism and moral relativism because I think under both of those conditions, the energy use of Bitcoin is bad. Absolutism, because currently it seems like there is an absolute truth that we're damaging the environment and that we should stop doing that. Uh, relativism, I think this is one of those rare times when there's a bit of synchronicity between them in terms of moral relativism. Yeah. It's, it's exactly on the same, same page here where, you know, our, as, as a collective group where we're anti energy inefficiency, we're pro looking after the environment Moral relativism would say, yeah, it's a bad thing. Utilitarianism... Would, would a relativist look at the energy required in the production and smelting of gold and say, well, compared to other assets that Bitcoin can be compared to, Bitcoin is actually on par and can be scaled way up compared to what gold production it's can It's an be. interesting question. I can't give you a definitive answer. What I can tell you, though, is that moral relativism, as I understand it, is is not relative to other things within the same context. It's, sorry, 
within the same era. It's more about relative to other cultures and relative to other historical periods. Right. But it is an interesting question, and I imagine that there are definitely parts of moral relativism that would that would bring this up. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've come across that argument before that the energy production of gold is somewhat higher than the energy required to mine Bitcoin. I but think that's a fallacy itself, though. The, there is a counter-argument to that, which, well, apart from being a fallacy, there is the counter-argument that once gold is made, mm. there is no more energy required to, yeah. to make it. Whereas if you have Bitcoin, it's on gold. you require this mining to occur to maintain the fact that you have that bitcoin i think utilitarianism is an interesting one because well i think we're probably going to come across this with everything we just we consider through utilitarianism is how do you define or how do you distinguish which is the greater good bitcoin you have mentioned multiple times on this podcast to your friends to the guy that delivers, you know, a parcel to anyone that will listen to you, you have said Bitcoin is going to change the world. So the utility of that is massive. Like there is massive upscale or upside to it mm-hmm. versus the downside of it being, you know, having the energy use of, you know, whichever nation. So, just looking at it superficially through utilitarianism, I would say utilitarianists would be in favour of it, assuming that they share your mindset that it is going to change the world. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the way that... That is the way that I view it. I... I hate how much energy it uses, and I would really prefer it to go to a proof-of-stake network structure yeah but i think that but i think that the cryptocurrencies that are coming after it that are that are in fact the ones that will change the world yeah they're going to they are proof of stake ethereum is currently proof of work but it's becoming proof of stake with ethereum 2 cardano is proof of stake polkadot's proof of stake solana is Mm -hmm. you know the the layer ones they're much, much more efficient. And if Bitcoin is the gateway to this world, which it currently is and for the foreseeable future will be, that is just the price of changing the world. Yeah. That's just that's just what it is. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that one. The environmental one as well is I can I can see a similar argument forming. We're talking about through the conservation ethic uh, in terms of environmental ethics. A lot of this is from Alan Marshall, by the way. The conservation ethic is to do with, you know, the value that we can get out of the environment. And and it, it kind of reads to me like the utilitarianist argument that we are currently getting a greater value from Bitcoin than we're losing through its uh, environmental inefficiencies, its energy inefficiencies. Mm. Ogo, it's worthwhile persisting with, uh, and and then you know the the tier ones come in and and it sort of becomes a non-issue. 
Yeah, I, I do. I do wonder whether this is all a bit of a moot point. How so? You can't stop Bitcoin. No nation can stop it. No company. No individual. It is just unthinkably hard to break it. Yes. Actually, it's kind of kind of funny. Moot point is. Uh, it's the wrong term because of a moot is where you actually discuss things, but a moot point is one that's not worth discussing. Anyway, I I don't I see it as being as being a bad thing, but I also see this as being something that is just unable to be stopped. You know? Is killing wrong? Yes. Is killing going to stop? No. See I have a big problem with what you've just said because should the conversation stop just because of that this is this is how we get into situations where you know you you have you know these these massive tech companies in silicon valley that you know are created like you know they're creating something out of nothing and then they're in this vacuum without any rules or regulations and no one stops to think hmm, what are the ethical repercussions of what we're do- what we've just done these conversations need to happen whether they're moot points or otherwise these things still need to be discussed and you know you and i have don't have the power to change anything and presumably whoever if anyone ever listens to this they probably won't have the power to do anything either otherwise but Ultimately, these conversations still need to be had at the community level and, you know, hopefully somewhere along the line they wind their ways up to a senior level as well or to someone in a position of change. Like, it's it's important to discuss, to go through the ramifications and that's why philosophy is such a great tool. Yeah, that seems fair. I wanted to also discuss and this is something that i wanted to go very very briefly over just because i think we're in agreement that it's it's a non-issue the improper use of cryptocurrencies yeah god that gets over egged yeah and especially a few years ago i don't know if it's still a thing now is it do you still see people talking about it now yeah i janet yellen was talking about talking about the improper use of cryptocurrency earlier this year. Right. Um, look, look there, there are rules against illegal things. Yes. I don't think we need to double up on them. You know, it's already illegal to traffic in drugs. Mm-hmm. If you, and the vast majority of crime is transacted with fiat currency. Yes. Um, we, we don't need to be bringing in laws to say that everything, that, that transaction types should be made illegal because they could be used to facilitate already illegal things. Yeah. It's, and it's not even that anonymous, you know? No, everything is stored on the blockchain. And if you want to, you can find out enough information that it is essentially like me taking a couple hundred dollars out of my bank account to go and buy drugs like there's a few extra steps involved but ultimately it's not anonymous right right metadata can be used to identify people and transactions really quickly Mm -hmm. really easily um yeah 
think of think of the what uh, governments and agencies can do with phone metadata. They don't need to know whose phone it is. They just need to be able to see where phones go, what times they go, what other phones they're around. Yeah, and they can start to pick up patterns, and then they can identify basically everyone who has interacted with the entire network without having to have too much other information. The same is true of of Bitcoin, except you voluntarily agree to provide that metadata. You agree that every transaction you make is going to be publicly identifiable for as long as the network is around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we've given that enough time, to be honest. The final thing I had in mind, and you might have some other concerns that you wanted to raise as well. The main thing I want to talk about was the ethics of speculation. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to run that through each of these scopes and I have done little to no preparation on this. So I don't actually know where I'm going to end up on each of these things. Let's just but go on a journey together. Great. Because I am someone who is uncomfortable with a system where money can be, where I have surplus money that I can just fritter away onto something like Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency and I look at it six months down the track and it is worth tenfold what it was when I put it in. And I have done absolutely nothing. I've literally just given my money away. I've made no, I've, you know, I've done nothing to increase productivity. I, I could not disagree with you more. Yeah. Okay. Let's take it from the start. Please. You have residual capital. You have savings. Yes. You worked to have those savings you are not a proper capitalist just yet you are still a worker bee and got my hard hat (laughs) (laughs) and that that savings that you had is effectively residual capital kept in monetary form yeah it's you earned it so i think you should be able to do whatever the hell you want with it now in terms of frittering it away you did have to work or some work had to be done to decide on where that that capital was placed. You had to, or more accurately, I had to, um, work out what was happening in cryptocurrency. I had to follow the news for months. I had to find out sources of information that were reliable because... God only knows there is so much just misinformation and and crap that goes around. And then we had to decide, you know, okay, we're going to invest money in these cryptocurrencies for these these reasons. And finally, there was no guarantee that you would 10x your your investments. You it could have just as easily fallen by 90% and then you have 100 bucks left over. By the way, I haven't 10x'd anything. That was just an example. I've made marginal profit at this point. I think it's fair to say. You've you've 5x'd. Have you've I? Fi- yeah, I think you've 5x'd your, your Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. Well, my overall, my suite. Yeah, your, your overall portfolio is up, but it's nothing to write home about yet. Mm-hmm. Where we're deferring here is you're coming at it from an individual level. I'm looking at it 
as a holistic detective. All right, let's let's look at it from a, a societal level. Without wanting to be a wanker about this, please. What we're investing in when we're investing in cryptocurrency is the fourth industrial revolution. We are investing in a better form of money. We're investing in a better form of societal interaction of companies of truth, um, and I mean all of that literally and unironically. We're investing in a better society. And what will happen is one of a spectrum of things. <laughs> but what we're hoping happens is that this revolution does take place and take place with the ferocity that, that we see it happening with. And if that happens, it's going to create so much value, just incalculable. Well, it, it'll be pretty easily calculated, but it, it mind-blowingly huge sums of value are going to flow to those who invested in it. And here's my question to you. When what you've invested in becomes worth so much more and you were the one to put in that that capital, you took that risk that it could have gone to zero, who else should that value flow to? The collective. It. Then why would you put your money in? Well, I shouldn't have to put my money in. But you do, because... But I have, I have, because this is the current system we operate within. Should we write to our local member and say, Hey, Bill, can you can you get the government to... Bill Shorten, he's a, he's a big fan of the show. <laughs> he is, in fact, our local member. Um, hey, Bill, if you're listening... <laughs> um, you keep on taking those knocks, buddy. <laughs> just keep getting on up good on you uh you know should we write to to scott and say hey look the uh the future fund we have a great idea chain link put a bill in see what happens put a bill <laughs> put a bill in <laughs> look i i have real reservations about a system that rewards people that speculate as a career move they do nothing of demonstrable value to society. I feel like you're looking right at me as an unemployed person. Hey, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Who is currently subsisting off my rather ridiculous crypto profits. No, I'm not looking at you specifically as... Look, you are just a byproduct of this system that we are in, as am I. You know, I, I've, I've worked for some real shit companies where I've made money doing some pretty shit things. Like, I'd appreciate some, some nice comments after you've called me a byproduct. I Did called both of us byproducts. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I feel uncomfortable that you've got these big wigs that can release or withhold... A certain amount of supply to create supply shocks to to force prices up or down as they see fit and make a killing as they see fit and no one bats an eyelid about it and me putting my pittance into the system is just enabling it to to continue uh, i don't know i don't know about that yeah yeah whales can can do some shady stuff you know a, a whale is someone who controls a large percentage of a given cryptocurrency and in cryptocurrency is such a such a new 
industry. Uh, there are there are for any given currency whales who can manipulate it. So a pretty common strategy would just be to uh, to sell a whole bunch of their their holdings, create panic in the market, let the let the the minnows and other little sea life sell their their holdings and then scoop it back up for a much lower price that's a pretty common thing that happens within any given crypto but that's a real short-term bump you know whales won't change the fundamental direction of this market and if you come into it with so we've got yeah our neighbor with the trombone and the cat with an amazingly loud display of eating her food um but she's eating really late as well yeah it's just not it's like she knows Mm. but if you if you're investing in this and you have the idea you have the belief that Chainlink is going to be the the way in which truth is determined across every measurable truth requiring um industry or process then you don't really care if the price drops 20% in a day. You're just like, whatever, wake me up in three years. Let's see where this is at. I think where I've arrived at with this, with the ethics of speculative investment, where I've arrived at is it is permissible if I'm in it for the long haul. Who cares? Shouldn't you be allowed to do what you want with your money? Yeah. Okay. I am. And I feel allowed to do what I want with my money. But I would also like to live in an environment where I can afford as a, you know, well, as a recently white collar worker, I can afford to own a home. Sounds like you need to invest in crypto. What I just, (laughs) you're being facetious, but what I dislike about that is that it shouldn't be necessary for me to invest in cryptocurrency to own a property. Those seem like separate things that are being forced together for an ethical point. You know, crypto being... Speculation being good or bad really doesn't have much to do with property prices in Australia. Although property prices, we could we could talk about that I as think, being a but, speculative... I mean, exactly. The, the, that is a system that, that reeks of speculation. But you need a home. You don't need crypto. You need a home. You don't need a fourth or fifth property. Sure. So... Are you saying, given that I don't need cryptocurrency, what are you saying exactly? I'm saying that you should be allowed to... I'm saying that you should be allowed to do what you want with your own money. And <clears throat> I think that there are there are places in which speculation causes societal harm. But mm. I don't think that really has to do with how much profit is given back to the person who invested. I, I think that they're two separate things. If you want to spend a thousand dollars and that turns into a hundred thousand dollars over three years time on investment x well in the absence of any harm whatever you know good on you you made a a bit of money happy days if on the other hand your investment that thousand dollar investment bought you the water rights to a small town which you then extract bottle and sell and make profit of a hundred thousand dollars and meanwhile the town is fucked that's a different thing that that's caused harm and i think that it's not the speculation that is directly causing the harm it's the action 
And in the same way that I don't think that cryptocurrencies should be banned because they can be put to bad uses, I don't think that cryptocurrencies speculation should be banned because house prices are expensive in Australia. They, you know, they're just two separate things. I think that speculation is fine. I don't know. I feel like speculation and our sort of glamorization of it has created the system within which prices in prices for property in Australia and many other parts of the world are unobtainable for young people. Mm. If we if we limit this conversation to cryptocurrency, I think that there's something that we haven't haven't really discussed and that is that looking through the top 100 cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. which at any given time are the most likely to return profit and to um, generate good returns and I'm not I'm not saying <clears throat> I'm not saying that in an absolute sense I'm just saying relative to the other 6,000 cryptocurrencies that are listed on CoinGecko it's the top 100 that you probably want to pay more attention to coming into this stands to reason even out of the that top 100 I, I look through I look through the top 10 and I see five that I think no, these just have no business being here, and in five years' time, I don't think they're going to be around. I look through the top 100, and I just think there are a lot of coins here that are bullshit, that will probably provide no value, and you have to do research on what you're investing in and why you're investing in it and all of that kind of thing in order to draw profit from it. Cryptocurrency isn't just a... A magical machine that you put money into and you get 10x's out of it you have to you have to put real thought into it you have to put real thought into how you're getting out of it uh and if you don't do those things then you can you can lose a lot of money going along the way and similarly someone is making a hell of a lot of money along the way as well let's let's talk a little bit about dogecoin mm. and how that has made a killing as a as a joke coin recently, potentially because you've got these big wigs diverting a lot of money towards it and saying, "Oh, hey, look over here, everyone! Look at Dogecoin! Look how great that's going! Look how great that's performing! Pump all your money into Dogecoin!" Yeah, that I don't think that's a. I don't think that that is a fault of cryptocurrency, though. I think that that is a flaw with market manipulation essentially this is my issue sure but again it's it's a temporary thing dogecoin finds itself incredibly hard to uh to stay at any given high valuation because i think there's 14 million of them mined every day there are for context that currently there are 900 bitcoin mined every day with new supply of 14 mil it was it was made to be a joke it was made to be insanely difficult for it to appreciate in value in fact it was made to lose value over time and it was made by someone as a as a criticism of of cryptocurrency i i quite like it for that point but as as i said before the market manipulation in in cryptocurrency it's it tends to be a short-term thing. Like, you know, 
in the short term it's a, a, a popularity contest but in the long term it's a weighing machine warren buffett said that about about stocks but i can't think he's wrong when it applies to to cryptocurrency we could see dogecoin go to a dollar that wouldn't be super surprising because it's not that hard to pump 14 million dollars into um into a cryptocurrency on any given day but it is quite hard to sustain that valuation for a long time without it actually providing any value that's right yeah should we put this through our prisms sure starting with moral absolutism but cryptocurrency and decentralized finance is good because the outcome, well, it, either way, if you look at absolutism from the process point of view mm-hmm. or the outcome point of view, yeah, it's absolutely a good thing. It's absolutely a good thing. Yeah, the process is fair. Whoever sees the value in it, whoever wants the world to change to become the sort of world that crypto can provide fairer more transparent mm. see yeah i agree with you on that and that's the the deontological realm it's right according to the process that it's going through the outcome i think it's too early for us to say yeah whether it's achieved it's really gonna depend i mean my my personal viewpoint is that this industrial revolution is inevitable mm-hmm it's inevitable mm-hmm. in the same way that once the first steam engine was made, the industrial revolution was inevitable. We were never going to go back from that point. Moral relativism. Yeah, I think I think it is still a good thing, relatively, which is why, which is why I think that you you do need to have a a moral morally relative viewpoint about cryptocurrency and what you're what you're investing in you have to have an understanding of it of what the actual underlying asset is i don't invest in bitcoin because i don't i don't really like it and i don't think it's necessary but for for from my personal portfolio or from my personal perspective but bitcoin was the first crypto that i got into before i understood anything and i think that that's going to be the case for well, I think that that is the case for everyone who does come into this. They just, they know what Bitcoin is. They're told to get Bitcoin. They come in, they get some, and then they they realize that the world is wider, that this stuff solves so many different problems in so mm. many different ways, and there are so many other ones out there. Yeah, I think a moral, morally relative mindset would take into consideration the context of Bitcoin existing and then all these tier ones that are coming in and showing like a more real capability mm. and doing so at a a more energy efficient in a more energy efficient way. And so that would be considered a huge positive. Yeah. But by the way, just uh, when we say tier ones or layer ones, we're talking about cryptocurrencies that other cryptocurrencies are then built on top of that ecosystems can exist within. And they tend to be... They, they are the most important to talk about within an ecological perspective because everything that's built on them simply works within that system. Utilitarianism. 
where do we sit with utilitarianism? I think that's pretty cut and dry as well. Yeah, I think that the utility of cryptocurrencies vastly outweighs its uh, its costs. I think that the the costs of crypto outside of outside of um, environmental concerns are really over overbeaten and generally not true. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, which leads us to our final environmental ethics. Mm. I mean, it's it's difficult to really ascribe that to the like DeFi and crypto as a as a whole, just because it's it deals with sort of quite a, a niche field. Yeah, environmentalism. I mean, but ultimately, conservation ethic the value that it can give to us, the sphere that it exists in, the value that we can get out of it. It doesn't have to be a real living biosphere for us to use this mentality. It's still, you know, this interacting sphere. It's still, you know, of benefit to us. I I would agree with that. With a reservation? Yeah, with the reservation. And I feel like I've said it too many times, but you don't have to invest in Bitcoin. I I chose not to, or at least I I chose to, and then once I once I'd done some research on this in, in when I was considering my, my holdings and the appropriateness of them, I I decided, yeah, no, I it's not for me. Um, and so I, I sold it and hold other cryptocurrencies that are proof of stake uh, instead, or at least Ethereum is moving to proof of stake. So you can make a personal decision to invest in cryptocurrencies without investing in Bitcoin. And my conscience is clearer for it. But even still, I think that overall Bitcoin is probably a good thing solely because it brings people into this ecosystem and it's the gateway for changing the world. Watch out, marijuana. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, Bitcoin really got its start through drugs. Makes sense that it's the gateway. Actually, no, it didn't get its start through drugs. I think it got its start through llama socks. Llama socks? Yeah, yeah, back... Back in 2009, 2010, when you could mine Bitcoin, but it was insanely difficult to try and transact for anything. Mm. One of the places that that did allow for transaction of, of Bitcoin was uh, this, this llama farm that sold llama wool. So- is, there a, is there a word for llama wool? Is- I can't think there would be. I feel I feel like it'll come to me after this episode. I doubt it. Um, yeah, write in the comments if there are comments where you're where you're listening to this. Yeah, um, help us out. What's Lamable? Yeah, not an engagement trick at all. Um, well, I mean, come on now. Like, what other <laughs> like sheep wool is just called wool, right? Yeah. Are there other like? But aren't all wools just called wool? What other wools are there? Well, there's llama. Is there, though? Like, that's the question at heart. <laughs> well, yeah. Ask this llama farm. 
the llama farmer. The llama farmer. <laughs> the Dalai Lama. La. <laughs> anyway, there was a llama farmer who is now a billionaire, I imagine. I, a visionary. I hope so. I hope that farmer just no needs no need to to sell off his llamas anymore. He's just having a really good time somewhere in the Andes. I hope he's bought a ton of llamas and he just lives on the land with them. Probably bought like a cocaine ranch and I'd imagine he's in South America. I don't know. Isn't that where llamas are? Look, that makes sense. (laughs) Checks out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there was one point that we didn't touch on at all in this episode and it comes up in the media when you look at problems with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and I just want to address it really quickly. That is fraud and scams in the cryptocurrency sphere. This to me can sit hand in hand with the improper use, you know, in terms of drugs. And exactly. Alcohol. Fraudsters, scamsters, they're, they're out to defraud you of value. Yeah. Your Nigerian grandpa, he doesn't care whether he gets paid in Bitcoin or, or fiat currency or gold or, or anything. Like, property. Scams exist everywhere. Yeah. They're... It's not confined to this realm. Exactly. The, uh, the one, the one thing that, no, nah, it's not even. Doesn't even really matter. I'll say it anyway because that's we're a, here. Yeah, we're here. You're listening. There, there is this. There is this concept of rug pulling in cryptocurrency, and that's where a, a new project comes out that promises to solve a particular problem, and they're going to issue their own cryptocurrency. They're going to issue their own tokens to uh, provide the the incentives within that that ecosystem and to get involved you need to send them ethereum because uh, pretty much everything is built on ethereum a lot of projects are valid and that's how they work they say here's what we're going to do here's the token please send us this much ethereum and we'll send you this much of our token and it's all hunky-dory but all, there are a lot of rug pulls which is where they create this entire like thing that they're going to solve and it seems like it's really cool and you send them your ethereum and then they disappear Mm. um so if you do get involved in in cryptocurrency that's honestly the the one thing that i would watch out for the most if you if you know how to not not get scammed through an email um then the one that you probably do have to watch out for is is things that seem legitimate um, and they're, they're rug pulls. All right, well, thanks for listening in, everyone. That was episode five for us, so that was the ethics of this, this realm that we're talking about. Um, yeah, leave us a comment. Tell us if you enjoyed this one, if you want us to go into any more, more niche or specific philo- philosophical discussions. Know, know how written they can be. If you'd prefer to hear our neighbour play the tuba for an hour, we can sort that out too. She didn't last very long. No, I was surprised. Last night was... Grateful. Yeah. I surprised. It just, it just sounds like someone who's a bit gassy going off for 15 minutes. With a loose butt. Yeah, very... Oh. Mm. It's, it's, an, it's an unpleasant sound. Hopefully she gets better. Well, she, she can only go one way from here. Can she? We've heard her play basketball. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sayonara.